Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this is the sugar and gluten and all carbs highfalutin episode. Sugar and honey and wheat flour and tapioca flour and farro and quinoa. These are the subjects of this episode of the Foodcast. In the last episode, we focused on the small but growing market for edible insects. In that episode, I sampled a series of food-like substances containing insects with what I thought was an escalating grossness factor. But it turns out, from an objection standpoint, you listeners gave me more negative feedback on the first sample in the experiment. Gluten-free mocha banana bread made with cricket protein powder, than you did for my eating whole grasshoppers, crickets, mealworms, and scorpions. And the negative feedback had nothing to do with the cricket powder itself. It had to do with the use of white sugar and gluten-free flour. So in this episode, I address those objections. We'll talk about the use of sugar versus other sweeteners. We'll talk about gluten and how to navigate the world of being gluten-free. And we'll close discussing some alternative grains that you can enjoy at what most likely is an inflated price. This won't be a comprehensive examination of these subjects. Instead, it focuses on why I personally don't have a problem eating what various factions of the world think are junk food. This is another in-between episode, which means I'll be flying solo again. There won't be any interview guests for me to hide behind. Let's get started. You know what sucks about having an unnatural, irrational, and insatiable curiosity about physical health, mental health, and physiology? People who know that about you start apologizing when it comes to their own perceived bad habits. I could be walking down the street and see a neighbor eating a sundae from Dairy Godmother, and he'll sheepishly tell me he knows he shouldn't. Or I'll be setting up a dinner date with some old friends and they'll ask my permission to go somewhere that has good beer. Or I'll serve bacon at a party and people who know I avoid pork think I'm a hypocrite. And I'm like, dude, because I live in a hipster neighborhood where we really talk that way. Anyway, I'm like, dude, you tell me that you read my blog, or dude, you've complimented me on the inclusive nature of the Karma Sense eating plan, which makes an excellent holiday gift that's sure to amuse and educate the recipient, all while supporting Alice's kids who receives all profits. Or I'll say, dude, You've downloaded my ebook Lose Fat Fast by entering your email address on the pop-up that appears on my webpage. And I say dude, even when I'm talking to a non-dude, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that by now, people who follow my advice for being healthy and happier should know that I'm not a militant who believes you can force a healthy lifestyle on others. There are no bad foods. There's only foods you should eat more of and foods you should eat less of. There are also things that are passed off as food, but really aren't food, so you should never eat them. I'm talking about you, trans fats. Bugs, however, I guess they're okay. I may be passionate about food, but I'm also quite neutral. I enjoy my fair share of ice cream. I love good beer. And yes, when it comes to pigs, I'm a lot like Hootie is to dolphins. But, I admit... I do like high-quality pork products. Ooh, bacon! So I suppose this episode is about that overused term, moderation. Overused, but a key to the sometime conflicting goal of health and happiness. In politics, being a moderate usually means analyzing all sides of an issue, 
and finding a middle ground that recognizes we can't be spoiled children who always get our way, nor can we expect people to always give ground. In nutrition, moderation doesn't mean something that different. Let's explore the phenomenon, using sugar as an example. If you're listening to this podcast, and I suppose you are, you already know that your body runs on sugar. It's a lot like how America runs on Dunkin', especially since most of what Dunkin' Donuts sells is sugar. Let's take a step back. Carbohydrates are long chains of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms. The longer the chain, the less sweet they taste and the harder they are to digest. The parts of the chain that you do digest get broken down to ever smaller units called monosaccharides, and the monosaccharides all have names that sound like one of those nuclear monsters who is always trashing Tokyo, including glucose, fructose, and galactose. The sugar you actually eat, not the starch or fiber, but the sugar, usually comes in the form of disaccharides made up of two monosaccharides. These include maltose, which consists of two glucose molecules and is one of the intermediate stage products made when brewing beer, lactose, or milk sugar, which consists of one glucose molecule and one galactose molecule, and sucrose, which is made from one glucose molecule and one fructose molecule. And that's your simple table sugar. Your liver is the mailroom for the rest of your body when it comes to sorting through the monosaccharides. Assuming you're not lactose intolerant, by the time galactose gets to your liver, your intestines convert it into glucose. At this point, the pathway for glucose and galactose metabolism becomes the same. The liver holds on to some and sends the rest into your blood. Your blood, which is made mostly of water, needs that sugar but it can't carry too much for the same reason adding too much sugar to simple syrup turns it from syrup into rock candy. So it stores the rest of the glucose in muscle, which like blood also has an upper limit. And so the rest goes in fat, which will take on as much as you can give it. And that's the short story of how sugar makes you fat. Now, there are many other mechanisms going on and the one most of us try to avoid is acquiring type two diabetes. Lucky for you, a discussion on diabetes is beyond the scope of this episode, but needless to say, you don't want diabetes. But this whole concept of your blood sugar level rising due to ingestion of glucose becomes important later in our story. For now, let's leave the discussion about glucose and talk about what happens to fructose. Fructose can't be used by the rest of your body. Fortunately, the liver can use it for energy, and what it doesn't use get turns into triglycerides, which is a fancy name for fat. Has your doctor ever told you your blood triglyceride levels are too high? Have you ever heard of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? You now met the culprit for both, and it's fructose. So, too much glucose makes you fat all over and can give you diabetes and is ultimately bad for your heart. Meanwhile, too much fructose makes your liver fat and is also ultimately bad for your heart. And now I hear the indignant voices who ragged on me for using table sugar, sucrose, 50% glucose, and 50% fructose in my cricket banana bread, joining together in unison, feeling vindicated. Oh, Davy H., don't use any sugar. The banana is sweet enough. Oh, Davy H., use stevia or some other fake sugar. Oh, Davy H., use honey or blackstrap molasses or maple syrup. It's still sugar, but it's full of antioxidants that can reverse the damage. 
Oh, Davy H, use agave nectar or some other sugar that doesn't cause blood sugar spikes like table sugar does. To those of you who say, don't use any sugar, banana bread is a dessert. It's meant to be sweet. Eating sweets in moderation works for me and for the other people who will eat this too. Although I haven't met anyone else who wants to try my mocha banana bread made with cricket powder. To those of you who say I should use stevia or some other fake sugar, they taste like ass. Wasn't I taking enough flavor risk by adding crickets? How about use a variety of sugar that has other healing properties like honey? While it's true they have beneficial nutrients, if I eat enough to reap the benefits of those micronutrients, it means I've eaten too much banana bread. There just isn't enough of those magic beneficial nutrients. Which leaves us with agave nectar and other so-called natural sweeteners that don't raise blood sugar. Agave nectar is crap. Have you ever heard about the evils of America's own high fructose corn syrup? Well, high fructose corn syrup's real true evil is that it's cheap and it's highly processed crap that doesn't appear in nature. Otherwise, it's nearly identical to sucrose, to table sugar. Well, agave nectar, despite any claims to being natural, is also highly processed crap. It isn't as cheap, but that's because it's not subsidized by your tax dollars, since it's made in Mexico, on the other side of the wall they built. Also, it's mostly fructose. Goodbye diabetes and hello fatty liver disease and hyperlipidemia. Agave syrup, many other foods get a halo effect because they're relatively low on the so-called glycemic index. But thanks to this here food cast knowledge bomb, you now know yet another reason why the glycemic index, a measure of the immediate effect different foods have on your blood sugar level, is bullcrap. Hey, you're welcome. What is moderation? There's no formal definition, but let's start with the latest dietary guidelines for Americans. It says stick to no more than 10% of your daily calories. Using the totally arbitrary 2,000 calories a day, an amount that's followed by no one but on every nutrition facts label, that means 200 calories or 50 grams. The American Heart Association, which is slightly less in the pocket of big sugar than our government is, but really, only slightly, says men should go with 37.5 grams and women and children 25 grams. This is about 9 and 6 teaspoons of added sugar per day, respectively. To put this in perspective, you blew it with that one can of Coke at 39 grams. A full-size Snicker bar gets you most of the way there with 20 grams. And my beloved Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby is 26 grams. So, if you're OCD about this kind of stuff, the 37.5 grams for men and 25 grams for women is as good as any. Especially if you're trying to maintain your weight. If you want to lose weight, reducing added sugar is your best bet. How can you do that without running spreadsheets and being forced to use your smartphone for something other than playing WWE 2K? Eat fewer foods that have ingredient labels. Don't drink your calories. If your drink has calories, it's probably from sugar. And restrict your treats to fewer times per week. If you eat ice cream five nights a week, and who would do that, cut it to two. Here's a few more side notes with respect to sugar. While the glycemic index is bullcrap and every person's blood sugar responds differently to the same foods, if you have any reason to be concerned about your blood sugar, such as a pre-diabetes diagnosis, or Dracula complaining that your blood tastes like a salted caramel frappuccino, then opting for low GI foods is as good a measure to follow as any. Also, some people can be allergic to sugar. 
Trevor Noah, The Daily Show, claims to turn red and blotchy whenever he eats it. More than likely, this isn't an allergy, but an intolerance due to some gut bacteria imbalance or some enzyme disorder. If sugar makes you feel or look like crap, try to wean yourself off of it. And that's my sugar rant. On to gluten. This is the sugar and gluten and all carbs highfalutin episode. But gluten isn't a carbohydrate. Gluten's a protein. It's found in wheat and related grains, so when there is gluten, there's carbohydrates. Those carbs are usually in a more complex form. That is, chains of more than two monosaccharides. Yes, the return of glucose, fructose, and galactose. Those long chains are called oligosaccharides, from the Latin, oligo shove a bunch of monosaccharides together. Gluten cohabitates with these oligosaccharides to make flour. It's what gives bread that chewy, elastic texture. Lately, gluten has been demonized. It's ironic, because when I was a wee lad, who wasn't so wee, I lost a crap ton of weight going on the Atkins diet. And one of the miracles of the Atkins diet was something called gluten bread. Bread that contained extra gluten at the expense of carbs, so I could eat a sandwich and still follow the diet. But gluten does have a dark side. 1% of the world's population has celiac disease, a serious autoimmune disorder in which the body attacks the small intestines in the presence of gluten. It's something your doctor can test you for. Another 10 to 15% of the world is glucose sensitive. That range of 10 to 15% exists because there's no real test or firm diagnosis for this condition. But I stand here absolutely convinced that just like people get uncomfortable eating nuts or dairy or beans without being technically allergic, some people react poorly to gluten. Certain members of the Healthy Lifestyle Militia, that vocal collection of health gurus who take extreme positions for the express and cynical purpose of making money with no real regard for you or the, for facts, in that sense, they're a lot like politicians, except unlike most politicians, you wouldn't object to seeing these guys naked. Anyway, two members of the militia in particular have done very well pushing an anti-gluten agenda. David Perlmutter, the author of Grain Brain, and William Davis, who wrote Wheat Billy, both make their amazing claims about what eliminating gluten from their diet will do. As is the militia's custom, they cherry-pick data to state their case. They made convincing arguments many people followed. Of those people, some of them were probably genuinely gluten-sensitive. Others got good results because by eliminating gluten, they also stopped eating Twinkies, Frankenberry, and other nasty processed foods. These people proudly stand up and evangelize about their results. Some people didn't see those results, but eliminating gluten caused no harm, and eventually they moved on to juicing or raw food cleanses or yogurt enemas or whatever else sounded good at the time but they tended to do so quietly. As with any health movement, the market tends to respond and starts making junk food that complies with the movement, and this certainly happened with gluten. Also, foods that never had gluten, and that you'd never associate with gluten, proudly promoted its gluten-freeness. And that brings me to the comment I got on my cricket banana bread and my use of gluten-free flour. Wheat Belly's William Davis, in particular, warns his flock of the dangers of junk carb replacements for gluten-containing foods. These include rice flour and brown rice flour. He does not discriminate by color. Potato flour, cornstarch, and tapioca starch. 
His biggest argument against these particular substitutes is their glycemic index value. All these substitute flours are worse on the glycemic index scale than wheat flour, and he says because of that they make you fat and give you diabetes. But we all have karma sense, and we know that the glycemic index is bullcrap and irrelevant for most people. If you have no specific reason to watch your blood sugar levels, you have no reason to worry about the glycemic index. You want another example of how ridiculous the glycemic index is? Well, I'm going to give you one anyway. White potatoes have a pretty high glycemic index, higher than that of Wonder Bread. But here's a few things about potatoes. They're more nutritious than Wonder Bread. And that says a lot, because remember what they say about Wonder Bread. Remember, Wonder Bread helps build strong bodies eight ways. But also, there's another index. It's called the satiety index, which is a measure of how much a food satisfies your hunger so that you stop eating. White potatoes are the highest food in the list, higher than Wonder Bread. People who ate boiled white potatoes were more satisfied than people who ate cheese, nuts, eggs, beans, or lingfish. Yes, lingfish. William Davis uses a bogus statistic to make a bogus argument. Now, there are many gluten-free flour substitutes that are nutritionally better than the so-called junk carbs. They include flours made from different nuts, seeds, coconuts, and of course, crickets. Don't forget crickets. But each flour substitute has its own particular characteristic that may not translate from recipe to recipe, so you need to do your research. My research said that when I had a recipe that I'd never used before and it called for gluten-free flour, and I had a package of organic gluten-free flour made from sorghum, rice, tapioca, millet, and buckwheat, and I had no other use for this flour, I'm going to use this flour. And if you need or want to avoid gluten, but are not nimble with the wide world of gluten-free flours, or if you're like me and don't eat a lot of products made with any flour, but have a certain occasion to use gluten-free flour, go ahead. Now here's a few more propeller head notes regarding the gluten-free movement. Many people who settle on a gluten-free lifestyle because they think they're intolerant may only be partially done with the modifications they should make. Some people who believe they're gluten-sensitive are actually sensitive to a broader range of foods called FODMAPs. FODMAPs stand for fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. If you stayed awake this far, you know what many of those words mean. Oligosaccharides, disaccharides, and monosaccharides are all types of carbohydrates. Polyols are sugar alcohols that occur naturally in some foods, but are added to many low-calorie foods because they're sweet, but have fewer calories than real sugar. FODMAPs are in a lot of foods. I mean a lot of foods. So many foods, and rather than giving you a sample, I include a link in the show notes to a list. Besides, if I selected a sample from that list and you think you may be sensitive to FODMAPs, you're going to be very sad. And I don't want to make you sad. Just know that if you've gone gluten-free and it makes you feel better, you may want to consider cycling off some of the FODMAP foods. I'm happy to help if you need it. Propeller head item number two. Even though I think going gluten-free is overkill for most people, gluten is not necessary for life. You can eliminate it from your diet and be very healthy. But when you eliminate major food groups from your diet without thinking about the nutrients those foods provided and figuring out how you'll make up for the shortfall, you've run the risk of being nutrient deficient. This isn't peculiar to the gluten-free crowd. The same holds true for vegetarians or people who eliminate pulses and beans from their diet and so on. 
It's difficult to make specific replacement recommendations because it depends on your diet both before and after you make the change. But it's worth figuring this stuff out. And again, if you have any questions, just ask. But here are two immediate challenges you face when going gluten-free. Gluten and other FODMAP foods are great prebiotics. They feed the beneficial bacteria in your gut. Conversely, sensitivity to these foods may be a result of poor diversity of bacteria in the gut. I can't make any recommendations here because I'm not a doctor. And even if I were, most practicing physicians don't know caca about the so-called microbiome. The second challenge is relative to immunity. There's a preponderance of research that shows that gluten increases natural killer cell activity, which is what helps our immune system fight cancer. In the end, going gluten-free is an option. Gluten status quo is an option. Reducing your overall gluten intake is an option. Your best bet is to eat what makes you feel good, not just while you're eating it, but for the many hours your body has to deal with it. But if you're interested in learning about a great gluten-free grain option, stay tuned for the next segment. Earlier this week, I wrote a post about the rice wars on my blog. It covered the difference between brown rice and white rice and helped people figure out which one of them is better. After that post, a reader asked for my take on another grain called farro. I knew I had written about farro before, and it was in a Dear Davy H blog post that predated the food cast, and I pointed the reader to that. And then I realized that the previous post had relevance to today's foodcast topic. So in the interest of making sure people who only listen to the foodcast have access to the great info on my blog, and to pad out this episode so it gets people through their commute, and I know there's a few of you out there, I'll cover the crux of that post. The letter deals with a new, ancient, highfalutin grain, and yes, I'm fully aware of how that statement's self-contradictory. The grain the reader asked about is called teff, but I cover the broad spectrum of ancient grains. Let's get started with the request. Dear Davy H, I'm always in search of ways to be healthier, be happier, and, oh yeah, to save the world. Recently, I came across this article about an alleged new supergrain called teff. Is this stuff for real? Is teff the next quinoa? Are grains okay to eat? I hear so many bad things about them from my friends who have read Wheat Belly and Grain Brain. Signed, Insane About Grain. Well, insane. It's confusing, right? Grains used to be good for you, and now they're bad for us, except for certain grains. And those few healthy grains always seem to come at a price. I don't simply mean that their newfound hipster status makes them expensive, which is also true. I mean that their popularity often comes at the expense of some other value we hold dear, such as protecting the environment or the rights of farm workers and local consumers. Well, here I am, a self-proclaimed food geek, and I had never heard of teff. I had no idea what it was. Ancient supergrains are supposed to have exotic, hard-to-pronounce names like quinoa, amaranth, or cat and crunch. Teff sounds more like something my college roommates would smoke in our room while I was off studying. Really, that's how it played out. Teff doesn't sound like a so-called supergrain. Well, apparently I'm wrong, as the article, Insane Scent from the New York Times, motto, All the Corrections Fit to Print, attests. Let's dissect this article and see if the supergrain label holds up. The article starts with this claim, quote, It has more calcium and vitamin C than almost any other grain. Well, the calcium claim seems to hold up. A single serving of teff has almost one-third the minimum recommendation from the United States Department of Agriculture. According to my research, because someone has to research this stuff, 
Amaranth is the only other grain that's a decent source of calcium. The thing is, calcium is a really easy nutrient to get. It's in dairy and just about any vegetable that doesn't flop over when you hold it upright. Calcium is important for good skeletal health, but it gets more attention than other critical nutrients with common deficiencies, such as vitamin D and K, as well as magnesium and phosphorus. They're all important for skeletal health, too. As far as the vitamin C claims concerned, I researched this claim far and wide, because someone has to research this stuff. I found plenty of lamestream and <clears throat> fair and balanced media articles making the claim that TEF is a good source of vitamin C. But when I go to the primary sources, Bupkis, who I believe was a linebacker for the Chicago Bears, but I'm not sure about that because I don't research football. I checked out the USDA's own database and the always in-depth and often actually accurate selfnutritiondata.com and primary research from PubMed and Google Scholar. There's nothing to substantiate this claim. They all indicate TEF's vitamin C content is negligible. The next claim is, quote, it's high in protein and iron, and much of its fiber is a type known as resistant starch, unquote. Well, after extensive research, because someone has to research this stuff, I can definitely assert that the protein claim is both true and false. Teff, like quinoa and a few other ancient grains, is a source of a complete protein. Protein is made up of chains of molecules called amino acids. Your body manufactures many amino acids to make the protein it needs, but there are nine amino acids that can only come from food. When food contains all nine, they're called a complete protein. Very few plant-based foods are complete proteins, but TEF is one of them. But media types often conflate complete proteins with high protein, and this isn't necessarily true. While there's no definition for the term high protein, I tend to use a single egg as the benchmark. A single egg is six grams of protein. A single serving of TEF has about four and a half grams of protein. Meanwhile, quinoa, another alleged high protein grain, has four grams. TEF and quinoa are good sources of protein, especially for vegetarians or people whose love for grain-based foods can be satisfied with TEF. They're not, however, high protein. Let's look at the iron claim. Based on my research, because someone has to research this stuff, TEF is indeed a strong source of iron. Other ancient grains are comparable, or better, including amaranth, farro, frica, and sorghum. But the king of iron-filled grains is the lowly and conventional oat. Rye is no slouch either. The thing of it is, if you're an adult dude or a postmenopausal woman, you probably don't need much iron if you're eating a relatively balanced diet. Women in their childbearing years, vegetarians, and children may have a legit reason to pump up the iron in their diet, and TEF is a reasonable source. There are many more accessible sources, including most meat, beans, nuts, seeds, dark leafy greens, and many fortified foods if you roll that way, and I suggest you don't. What about the resistant starch claim? My research, because someone has to research this stuff, led me to the following. Resistant starches are complex carbohydrates, oligosaccharides for those of you who are paying attention. Resistant starches aren't digested and absorbed by the digestive system. They occur naturally in some foods, such as beans and seeds. Other foods contain resistant starch during their natural life cycle, but the starch content decreases over time. Green bananas are loaded with resistant starch, but those starches break down into sugar as the bananas ripen. Still other foods may develop resistant starch as they're processed. For example, the carbohydrates in pasta become resistant starch 
if you let the pasta cool overnight and eat it directly from the refrigerator the next day without reheating. There's more about resistant starch in that rice blog post I mentioned earlier. The evidence in favor of eating resistant starches is strong. They appear to help people feel full, lose weight, increase insulin sensitivity, and reduce the chances of type 2 diabetes. They also are helpful for 2016's nutrition buzzword, the gut, aka the microbiome. Finally, they can make you gassy, and while you may not consider this to be an advantage, I'm always looking for new ways to justify the rude noises I make in public. Now, not in the post that I wrote, but relevant to the earlier discussion, resistant starch tend to fall in the FODMAP family, so keep that in mind as well. Overall, TEF is a good natural source of resistant starch, but its total content isn't significantly greater than oats. Here's a concluding quote from the article of interest. It's from a company that's creating TEF-based products, and it says it all, I think. Quote, I think if we can turn TEF into things like bars, chips, pastas, crackers, and cereals, then the market for it could be really big in the United States. Unquote. Well, folks, say goodbye to all those health benefits. But are grains safe? That was another part of Insane's question. Well, I often address the question whether grains are helpful, but I may as well summarize it again. First of all, grains can be part of a healthy diet. Second, grains are not a necessary part of the diet. Third, some people have conditions that are better served by avoiding some or all grains. These include, but are not limited to, celiac disease, allergies, sensitivities, and Joneses. If you're not familiar with the last one, it's when you have a craving for something, and once you get it, you can't stop eating it. As in, I really have a Jones for some bacon and ranch flavored chocolate covered cheese puffs. Four, if you're into self-experimentation, stop eating all grains for a few weeks and see how you feel and how it affects your weight and other vital signs that are important to you. By doing so, you may find things move in a positive direction, in which case you discovered something important about yourself that you can use in the future. If you miss grains, but like the results, try adding back some of the gluten-free versions and see if you stay on track. And five, don't jump on the gluten-free bandwagon unless your eyes are wide open. First of all, I don't think such a bandwagon actually exists. So if you see one, it may just be a grain deprivation mirage. Secondly, many gluten-free packaged products are ultra-processed crap with no redeeming value. Read the ingredient lists carefully. Let's throw in a comment about ancient grains or two. Wheat and corn are the two most common grains in the North American diet. The wheat and corn we currently eat are bred to minimize their time to market and the cost to produce them. This is done with no consideration of features such as taste or nutrition content. This doesn't mean they're bad for you, it just means that Monsanto and DuPont don't worry about those aspects of their product. Many of the ancient grains are the genetic relatives and predecessors of modern grains we eat, and this often leads to a better nutrient profile. To me, the most amazing thing about this article is that according to my research, because someone has to research this stuff, there doesn't really seem to be a single place to go to compare the qualities of different grains when one may want to eat. That is until now. I created a comprehensive table. Oh, I love tables. I created a comprehensive table with the most common ancient hipster grains and conventional grains listed and compare them based on what it is. Is it actually a grain? Is it wheat? Or is it a seed?
whether or not it has gluten, the usual price for it, how many calories it has, how much fiber it has, whether it's complete protein or not, and the minerals that really stand out and the vitamins that really stand out for it. I include a link to it in the show notes, and I really think you should check it out. And so ends another episode of the Foodcast. What did we learn? Some people can get really dogmatic and unrealistic about food choices, and that's rarely a healthy option. There's a name for people who overly stress out about the healthiness of their diet and who see no wiggle room or exceptions. No, that name isn't batshit crazy. It's orthorexic. When you truly have a great appreciation for the miracle of food and how your body works with it, you don't feel helpless. You don't say to yourself, why bother? And you don't need to micromanage your food in an obsessive way. So as I bring this episode to a close, let me turn the light switch on and off. One, two, three. And remind you, that it's not too late to give the gift of health, happiness, and a safe world by purchasing your copy of the Karma Sense Eating Plan. It'll provide hours of entertainment through the holidays and months of inspiration for New Year's resolution. Meanwhile, until next time, remember what your old pal Hootie always says. <laughs>